Good evening. It's my pleasure to welcome you here uh, to the Sydney Ideas Talk. I'm Professor Eva Cairns from the School of Physics here in the University of Sydney. And I think we've got a real treat in store for us tonight. Uh, Fran, uh, Professor Fran Baganel has already given one talk today uh, at, more, um, uh, at a higher level, uh, a research seminar, and that was just fantastic. I think that this one will be, perhaps, if, if it's possible, uh, even better. Before we, we get to an introduction to Fran, let me just um, tell you about the pieces of paper that are on your, your chairs. Uh, some of them say reserved. Uh, that just means that you are one of the people who reserved a seat. Uh, on the other side of it, uh, you'll see a survey. If you'd like to fill that in, uh, it would be very helpful for the people organizing Sydney Ideas uh, talks to find out how better to do them. So please take the time, if you can, fill them in, put them outside uh, as you leave. I should also mention that this is an event that's being recorded by Radio National, uh, by ABC Radio National, so um, don't be surprised if you hear your voice uh, when you ask a question uh, later. So Professor Fran Baganol, uh, she joins us today from the United States where she's a professor uh, in a rather complicatedly named um, uh, department which changes with time, but at the moment <laughs> the Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences Department uh, at the University of Colorado Boulder. She started off in Britain where she did her, where she did her undergraduate work, went to um, Boston to MIT for her PhD where she worked on basically the uh, Voyager encounters with Jupiter and then Saturn, did some of the early work on the Io or Eo uh, plasma torus and the associated work then. And then I met her a number of years later uh, when she was, um, when we were both um, in the Neptune, in the teams um, at the Jet Propulsion Lab for the encounter of Voyager 2 uh, with Neptune. She's gone on from there to work on essentially every outer planet mission that there is, um, including the two perhaps more recent ones, the New Horizons probes, the one we're going to listen to today about Pluto, and the one earlier today uh, about Jupiter, which is the Juno spacecraft. She leads the plasma science teams uh, for both those, and she is a co-investigator on them as well. So without further ado, I give you Professor Fran Bagnall. Thank you very much, Eva. Great. So it's a huge pleasure to be here and to tell you about Pluto, about the New Horizons mission that flew past last summer, and what we've learned, and why it's important. Why do we care about the small object in the outermost edge of the solar system? So this was actually a graphic that we put together beforehand, and actually has turned out to be not too uh, unrealistic, we think. Uh, here's the moon, Sharon. Here is uh, the sun. The sun is much fainter when you're out at 33 times the distance between the Earth and the sun. Uh, we didn't get as close as this, though, with a spacecraft. So let's go back and think about uh, how we got here and what's going on. So Pluto was, in fact, discovered uh, here, 1930, early on, by Clad Tombow, who was looking at the sky and looking, in fact, for an object that might be perturbing the orbits of the outer planets. But you'll see that with a 248-year a orbit around the sun, 
Uh, by the time we actually fly by uh, last year, it had barely done halfway around the sun. And along the way, you can see various space exploration events, the Sputnik, the lunar landing, the discovery of the moon Sharon around Pluto. And then, uh, very interestingly, we began to discover a whole bunch more objects. But the second one after Pluto was not discovered until 1992. So how do we detect these objects? Well, what Clyde Tombaugh did as a young man, as an intern at the University, uh, at the uh, Lowell Observatory in Arizona, was to look through this telescope and make photographic plates and then compare the photographic plates taken a few hours apart. And if you look very carefully, you can see that one of those objects has moved from one to the other. Can you see which one it is? I'll help you. It's that one. Okay? And so by looking at how objects move relative to the stars, the stars being so far away, they're essentially fixed in a photographic plate, we're able to find objects that are closer to the sun. And this is how we detect asteroids and so on, as well as now Kuiper Belt objects. So later, after uh, the discovery of Pluto, um, this person, uh, John Christie, was looking at the sky, actually trying to measure the orbits of Pluto more accurately. And what he found was that there seemed to be this fuzzy object that moved in front and behind. And then uh, he realized that this was a moon. And so this was the discovery of the moon Sharon uh, that orbits. And in fact, they orbit it's almost like a double system with them orbiting around each other, Pluto and Sharon. So here, the discovery of many more objects. Uh, now there are thousands of them uh, detected by looking for motions, small motions of objects uh, relative to the stars behind. And now we do this digitally. The di digital revolution has allowed detection of thousands of them. So now we know there are many of them, all sorts of different sizes, all sorts of different colors, all sorts of different whether or not they have moons or not. And here is a movie that shows you the detection of them. So here's Pluto uh, in orbit, just uh, moving from inside to outside the orbit of Neptune. These are the orbits of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. And you can see the discovery uh, since... Uh, 1992 of many thousands of these objects. And you'll see that they're all over the place, some big, some small. But notice that there seems to be an absence in this direction beyond Pluto and an absence in this direction over here. And at the end, if you're an amateur astronomer, you may be able to think about why this may be. So we'll come back to this later. If we turn the orbit of Pluto on its side, you will see the plane of the planets here and the Kuiper Belt objects are scattered all over the place. So they're not in the plane of the planets, they've been scattered outside. Okay, so here's a few more of them. Some of them have moons, they all have interesting names. And for comparison of size, I'm going to show you the largest object of the asteroid belt series. This is a picture taken by NASA's um, Dawn spacecraft that recently flew by and took these pictures, uh, and it's actually in orbit around Ceres and, and took a whole bunch of pictures. So you can see that the objects of the Kuiper Belt have a whole range of colors, and um, uh, there are many of them that are much larger than the largest asteroid belt. So here 
are the two main objects uh, that I'm going to talk about today, um, the Sharon, the Moon, and Pluto. And you can see that uh, not too different in size, separated by about uh, uh, eight diameters of Pluto. And for comparison, here we have the Earth. So they're much smaller than the Earth, still substantial round objects. And for mass, uh, we have one Pluto mass here, 457 of them to make up the mass of the Earth. And the ratio between um, Sharon and Pluto is about one to eight. So this is uh, a big moon for a small planet. So this was the best we could do with Hubble, a fuzzy blob. And you look at this and you say, oh, yeah, I see craters, I see volcanoes, I see not much, right? I mean, it's a fuzzy blob, dark areas, light areas, orange areas, that's sort of about it. Not much we can do with this. We can try and work out what the surface looks like a bit better by using clever techniques from the ground, but this is the, really the best we can do. We do know some things, though. We can get a sense of the density. We can use Newton's version of Kepler's third law to sort out the mass of Pluto and Charon. We know that their combined density is about twice that of water, so there's a mixture of rock and ice. And we know the surface temperature of these objects, uh, 40 Kelvin minus 233 Celsius minus 390 Fahrenheit. I don't care what units you use, it's bloody cold. So at these temperatures, the surface, everything is pretty much ice, uh, especially water. Okay, so we decided we would go and explore Pluto. The young man, Alan Stern, who was a graduate student, just finishing up his PhD, came into my office. I had just started as a junior faculty at the University of Colorado, and he said, let's go to Pluto now that Voyager has gone past Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and finally Neptune. It was about to go past Neptune. He said, let's go to Pluto, and I thought, well piddly little planet compared with the big giant planets I've just been looking at. But, okay, I joined in and we got started on an epic. So there were many studies. And this is the way things tend to work in space research. You don't just say, oh, let's go there and you can go there straight away. There are endless uh, studies trying to persuade NASA that you know what you're doing and you really um, have an idea of, of why it's important to go. And you'll see that, in fact, we really could not get a mission going until the, a lot more objects had been detected. We kind of needed the Kuiper belt to be discovered to show that Pluto was not alone. It wasn't just a lone object out there um, to justify why we should go. Anyway, we were lucky enough to be selected. It was a competitive bid, uh, and uh, Alan and his team were selected. We... Uh, proposed back in 2001. Uh, we started building the spacecraft, and here you can see the antenna, and this is the uh, power system, the radioisotope thermoelectric generator, uh, which causes, so provides the power. And then you have to test it, you shake it, you spin it. This is called the shake and bake test, where we get it ready 
so once it gets into space, it can survive launch and it can survive um, for the near decade it would take to get out there. Oh, before I go on, look at this team. Not a lot of women on that team, you'll notice. That's going to change. Okay. So what about the instruments? Well, of course, we have to have some cameras. We have LORI, long range and a high resolution uh, wide angle. This is the high resolution one. The wide angle gives us color. Uh, we have a UV detector. I'll show you why that's useful a bit later. We have particle instruments, SWAP and Pepsi. Note the extra S so we're not violating any uh, uh, um, copyright there. And uh, then the radio antenna. We use the radio antenna to measure the atmosphere. Uh, and then we have the student dust counter, the most important instrument on the entire spacecraft that was built, designed, built, tested, and operated, and the data analyzed by students at the University of Colorado in Boulder. So uh, what this instrument is, is a... Uh, tray, it's about the size of a tea tray, and it has pieces of plastic on it, very special pieces of plastic, which as the spacecraft is going along very fast, uh, about 35,000 miles an hour, uh, dust particles that it hits, hit this, this, these detectors, will then uh, produce a little voltage and a signal that we can then send back to the Earth. So we record the number of times that we go through and hit uh, a piece of dust as we go out through the solar system. So I'm going to ask you a quick question. How often do you think the New Horizons spacecraft hit a piece of dust as it went out through the solar system? What do you think? You've had maybe uh, a thousand times a day? Twenty a second? Once a day? Fifty times total? wide range of guesses there. The answer is about uh, once every three days. So space is empty, contrary to those movies that suggest that as you go through the asteroid belt, these objects are all coming, firing at you. Uh, space is in fact very empty. So um, this was a very important instrument and many students have been trained and have gone on to professional careers as space scientists and engineers, uh, having had this experience. Okay, so we get ready for launch day, 19, 19th of January uh, 2006. Spacecraft is launched, and off we go. And um, we are, uh, just before we launch the spacecraft, though, the Hubble Space Telescope looks to see if there are any more objects around the Pluto-Charon system, and they find four more moons. So we now have six objects to go and look at. Uh, two were detected on the way out there. So uh, we had to plan our, what we were going to do and how we were going to uh, fly by. Uh, but before we talk about the results, I want to give you a little bit of context of why we care. So here's a bit of time out to talk about um, solar system formation. So we know that there are clouds out there in the uh, beyond uh, the solar system, in nearby systems, stellar systems, 
where there are clouds which collapse to form stars. So we have some sense of how we think solar systems formed. We see the clouds, we see new stars, and so on and so forth. But the question is, how do you go from this cloud that's out in space into the actual objects that we have in our solar system? How does that work? So the idea is that you have a cloud that collapses. As it collapses, it spins up, and um, you form a star at the center. The young star, it's supposed to be a young star, um, cools off, and then around this star, the objects that are closer to the star, the materials that are closer to the star, the rocks and the metals will condense out, because they condense at higher temperatures. But further out, uh, once you get out beyond the frost line, beyond the snow line, you can have ice uh, also freeze out. And it turns out there's a lot of water in this, these clouds that, can, that condense out to form the solar system. Oxygen is, in fact, the third most abundant element in the universe. And so we know that oxygen plus hydrogen produces water. We expect big snowballs uh, onto which hydrogen is pulled in to make the gas giants. So this basic story gives us small rocky planets close to the star because there's not a lot of um, rocks and metals. The, these elements are much rarer, so you end up with small planets in close to the star. And then further out, you have giant planets with cores of icy material onto which the hydrogen is pulled to make the giant planets. So that's all very nice, but it really doesn't explain uh, Pluto and the Kuiper Belt. So a few years ago, people began to think about the, the next level of complexity. And this was partly driven by seeing um, planets that are around other stars that are big Jupiter-sized planets that are really close to the star. And that suggests that those planets must have migrated or moved from their original location. The other thing that provoked ideas, of change of ideas, is that you can't actually make Uranus in its current location out at about 20 AU. AU is distance between the Earth and the Sun. So the idea is, let's try a new system. Let's put Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Uranus in orbit, in close, around where uh, Jupiter and Saturn are right now. Let's put a whole bunch of other stuff around the outside. Planetesimals means small objects that could become planets. And then we'll put this into a computer and let it run. So uh, this has, over millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune in orbits. And then they begin to scatter these objects, the planetesimals. But they also go into resonances that cause a change in the motion of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. You get a resonance that scatters Uranus and Neptune much further out and sends all the rest of the objects, planetesimals, out. I'm going to run it again because it's kind of cool to watch this. So this happens at about 800 million years, and uh, the, you have an orbital resonance between Jupiter, the big planet, the big bully, uh, with Uranus and Neptune, causing them to migrate. 
There it goes. And then they settle down into fairly circular orbits where they currently are located. So this is very convenient. We're able to get uh, the main giant planets in the right place. And we also are able to scatter the Kuiper belts out. Uh, so we can make um, the system that we have. But also, this is a way in which you can deliver these icy objects from the outer solar system in to bring water to the Earth as well as the inner planet. So maybe this is a way in which we can um, have water here on Earth because otherwise the, the basic simple description of just having rocky planets forming close to the star would not allow us to have water. And of course that would mean us since we're something like 90% water. So this is a convenient idea, but it's just an idea. We need to test it. And indeed, going out and exploring the Kuiper belt is one way of seeing whether or not this idea can work. So we launched the New Horizons spacecraft in 2006, and it spent nine and a half years heading out to Pluto, to rendezvous with Pluto in 2015. So here is the flyby. Uh, we're moving at 33,000 miles an hour. We have a design, our system. The Pluto system is actually tipped on its side so that um, looking from the sun, these objects are going around like this in a bullseye. And so we go through the system. We go behind Pluto and Charon. Um, but notice these are actually single 10-minute tick, ticks. And so this whole flyby only lasts a few hours. We've taken nine and a half years to get there, and the flyby lasts just a few hours. There are a few other things that are worth noting. The one-way communication time between the Earth and Pluto is four and a half hours. Okay, so there's no joysticking this spacecraft. We have to program it to go there. And then we have to tell it to send the data back and the transmission rate is 3 kilobits per second. So that's the sort of like the old dial-up modems that, that maybe some of the older people in the audience will remember. But modern phones are at least a 1,000 times faster than this data rate. Okay. So the other thing we have to worry about is that if we can be taking pictures uh, out at Pluto, the sunshine... The, is about a thousand times uh, weaker out there. And so we're going to have to have very long exposures to take pictures. And that means we don't want to get too close. Now, to get a sense of Pluto, uh, Pluto light, there is actually a fun website you can go to called Pluto Time, and it'll tell you what time of the day in your current location uh, is Pluto time. So how close to, to dark at night time you need to go and you can post your picture like all these people did here, which is kind of fun. But the result for the spacecraft is that we have to have long exposures. Now, if you have long exposures and you're moving really fast, you can't get too close, otherwise the pictures will be blurry. And so we had to design our mission so we um, don't get any blurring and yet we can try and get as good a close-up as we can of the surface. So that was that plan. And so this is what we did. The New Horizons spacecraft is a robot. We tell it what to do. We program it 
to go through a long sequence, taking pictures, spinning around, more pictures, different regions, looking at the moon, that moon, the other moon, looking at Pluto, coming back, looking at the other moon, and so on and so forth, all moving at 33,000 miles an hour and going through this system in just uh, four hours. So uh, this is a robot that is doing what we told it to do, taking all these pictures, snap, 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 and then turning back to the Earth and saying, I've got the data on board in my memory. Okay, so we knew on the uh, 14th of July last year that this is what our spacecraft was doing. We had to sit there and wait while it took all the data. And so what do you do while you're waiting for the data to come back? You take a selfie, right? A modern era, that's the thing you do. And you'll see here that there are now on the team many, many women um, this is, it's in fact about 30% um, women on the team now um, by the time we actually get there, uh, including the deputy project scientist and the person who was in charge of the operation, the, uh, the mom, the mission operations manager, Alice Bowman. So finally, after we've uh, had a lot of um, public events, we know by the end of the day the spacecraft uh, eventually turns back and says, I've got all the data on board. And I like to juxtapose these two pictures of the Apollo-era operations center from uh, July of 1969, when they were cheering the landing on the moon um, with July 14th, 2015, um, for two reasons. One, of course, is there's no way that we would be smoking cigars in a modern-era NASA operations center, but also... We now have a woman at the helm. Okay, so then we all go nuts because the data is on board. I've been working on this mission <laughs> since 1989 and I just hear that the, the data banks are full of data and we all are cheering away. So what did we see? Well, what we found was an amazing surface with all sorts of interesting things. Really, way more complex than I would have imagined. I thought it was going to be a kind of boring thing with a bunch of impact craters, but oh no. So, indeed, this heart shape was very good for public relations, but the reality is there's a lot of interesting stuff to look at. All sorts of regions. We um, have informally named it after a whole bunch of explorers and science fiction names. Uh, but this area, Sputnik Planum, uh, uh, Tombo Regio, uh, is an important area that we will look at in some detail. So we chose um, one side to explore, the side actually where the heart is, because it's actually brighter and therefore our exposures wouldn't have to be quite so long. But with a, a 6.4 Earth day uh, orbital period and spin period, they're the same for Pluto and Sharon, um, we could not, in the four hours flyby, get uh, both sides at high resolution. And we, we picked this, this one side to go up close. If we map it out, the, um, the southernmost part of the, of the object is dark. It's in permanent darkness uh, because it's being tilted on its side. Um, but you can see the different resolution, very high resolution, in close uh, around Tombow, 
Reggio, and then Fuzzia on the edges. So what are we looking at? What we're looking at is rock at the centre and ice on the outside. All of what you see on the outside is ice. It's a mixture of water ice and uh, other ices. I'll show you that in a minute. Um, but you're not seeing the rock. The rock is, in fact, uh, 300 kilometers deeper or 180 miles down from the surface. So there's no evidence of rock on the surface. Now, when we look at the ice, we can use the spectrometers on board. And what we see is nitrogen ice. So the gas in this room would be frozen as ice on the surface. Uh, methane ice. Uh, carbon monoxide, and water ice. Water ice acts like rock at these temperatures. It is solid, it's brittle, it, it, it can break up, uh, but it is, it is very rigid. So when we look uh, using the, the spectral imager, the uh, ENVIC instru instrument, we can see the distribution of these ices. And it's not uniform. You'll see that Sputnik Planum in particular has a lot of the nitrogen ices, whereas methane ice seems to be spread seasonally over the surface. So methane, when you have snow on Pluto, the snow is methane ice uh, raining out of the atmosphere. Water ice is found, uh, not found in Sputnik Planum, but in other places around and when we look at it, it looks covered in black stuff. And what is that black stuff? What could it be? Well, we'll see in a minute. So Sputnik Planum is this area that's, that's lighter. It's part of the left ventricle, if you like, of the heart. And this, we think, is in fact, when we look at a topography picture, it looks like this could have been an impact crater. Maybe a grazing impact crater because it looks more oblong, maybe in this direction, a little more spread out on this side. And so this is probably a large impact crater um, that produced a hole, which then filled with ice. It condensed, material condensed out uh, and filled up this um, big impact crater. At least that's what we're now, what we're thinking. So this nitrogen ice, nitrogen ice flows. Think of, yes, glaciers, but also think of silly putty. If you take silly putty and you warm it in your hand and you leave it on the table, it will flow and spread out. The same sort of thing is true of nitrogen ice. It flows relatively easily, and we see evidence of this flow, of it flowing around various features, it flowing along, uh, but also we see these polygon, these polygonal cells. So what we think is happening in these cells here is that ice is convecting. Nitrogen ice is forming convection cells. So this is a think of soup on your uh, on a on a co cooking stove. You heat it up in a big pan and it turns over and produces these cells. Okay, it's the same sort of thing that we think is happening uh, in in this ice. So a recent paper by Bill McKinnon. He uh, examined this, and this is a nice example here. You can see these cells over here. These are uh, rocky edges to this uh, impact crater, which is its not rocky. Sorry, I keep using the word rocky, but it's actually ice, water ice, but it acts like rock. That's why it looks like these are like mountains sticking up, but it's, it's water ice. 
So this is the soft nitrogen ice uh, off to the side forming these cells. And here is a, a movie of a simulation of, this, of these cells moving, turning over, uh, bumping into each other and spreading out and so on. And we think these uh, are the cells of convecting nitrogen ice. And the time scale would be half a million years to turn over one of these cells. So it's on geological times, that's relatively short, but on the uh, age of the, um, uh, you know, if you're looking at it, you're not going to be observing it actually flowing from year to year. Here is an example of some water ice that has sort of been pushed around in these convecting cells. It turns out the water ice is lower density, it's lighter, and floats in nitrogen ice. So if you have some chunks of water ice, it sort of acts like the chunks in your soup, right? You have some chunks of, of cabbage and onions or something maybe in your soup that convect around and they get pushed to where the downwelling is. And this is what happens with the water ice uh, uh, in this convecting cell. Here is an example of what it's like at the edge of the Sputnik planum. So we have the convecting ice here. There are no impact craters on this Sputnik planum. That tells you it's relatively young. That's how we can get a sense of the time scale for this convection. But next to it, in the older regions, we have lots of impact craters. And so you can see this strip here is going from fresh Sputnik planum through this mountainous water ice mountains uh, into impact cratered areas, older areas behind. So here's a close-up that shows that boundary between the convecting uh, ice with maybe snow drifts on the top and then these mountains of water ice uh, off to the side. So these are really quite large. This is a topographic map that shows these are as high as uh, six to uh, maybe nine kilometers in height so these are really large. They're as big as the Rocky Mountains in the western United States. Uh, and these are water ice chunks that are floating and sticking up. Here's another strip showing you through this area of impact craters. You can see there are lots of craters. tells you it's quite old. You can see some cracking where it's broken up, maybe on cooling and freezing the water ice. You know, water ice expands when it freezes, so this might lead to the cracking. Uh, but you'll also see that there's some frost at the higher elevations, and that is probably methane ice, which has snowed out onto the higher regions. Here's a close-up there, and you can see these impact craters, and the rings of the impact craters have... Uh, all of this ice uh, building up, this methane ice on the edges. So here is a movie of uh, what it was like to fly on the spacecraft through New Horizons. We fly up close and then we look, we go into the shadow and look back at the sun. The sun goes behind Pluto and then goes behind Sharon and goes past. And this is very useful because what we want to do is to look back at the sun uh, with our UV instrument and look at the sunlight because what we want to look for is how sunlight is absorbed by the atmosphere of Pluto. So here goes the sunlight, nice and bright, 
it dips down, we go into the shadow, and then it comes back up again on the other side. But you'll see that it begins to dip down far from the surface of Pluto. The atmosphere is very extended, and so because the gravity is weak, and so uh, we have absorption by gases far from the surface of Pluto. And then we can look at the different spectral signatures of that absorption of sunlight and say, okay, what is this uh, atmosphere made of? And it's made up mainly of nitrogen, just like the room that we're breathing. The gas in this room here is mostly nitrogen. Uh, but in addition to nitrogen on Pluto, there's methane and CO, carbon monoxide. But this was also a big surprise. When we look, this is a real picture. When we look back at the sun, we see the blue light, the scattered light, the Rayleigh scattering. Same reason why our sky is blue outside. Uh, we see the scattering by haze particles making the atmosphere blue. So there's a lot of haze in the outer layers uh, of the atmosphere of Pluto. So what's going on? So what we think is happening is that methane, CH4, absorbs UV sunlight and it is converts methane into more complex hydrocarbons. Here we just have ethylene and acetylene, but it could also make much more complex uh, hydrocarbons. And this material rains out onto the surface. So you're making black, yucky, browny, yucky, gunky, oily stuff in the atmosphere that rains out to cover the surface. So that black stuff on the surface of Pluto is indeed oil of some kind, hydrocarbons that are raining out onto the surface. So we've experimented in the lab making these things. We call them folins. This is what Carl Sagan called them. I'm not quite sure why they're called folins, but they're basically gunky stuff. Uh, and over time, they become radiated by um, sunlight and they get darker. And so this area over here on Pluto is very old. It's called Cthulhu. That's the informal name for it. But that's where this stuff has accumulated to make this oily, black, gunky, slimy area here. At least I don't know it's slimy, but it seems like it should be slimy. Um, Whereas the fresh area, white area of Tombow Regio uh, is young, it's crater-free, and has very little of this material that has rained out from the atmosphere because it's been turned over and is relatively clean. So here's an example over time. If you look at the fresh area here um, with only the brown gunky stuff and the edges uh, and this convecting place of, on, on uh, Sputnik Planum. But if you look at the older mountains, not only is there a whole bunch of this brown gunky stuff, uh, but you can also see that in, it's actually in layers, if you look very carefully. So it looks as if there's been snow, and then brown gunky stuff accumulated, and then more snow, and then brown gunky stuff, and so on. Geologically, looks like strata, of different layers here that have built up. So this is a really complicated surface. I wasn't expecting anything as complicated as this. This is great. Complicated is fun. Now, what on earth are these? Look at these black things. If you're confused, they are innies, not outies. That is, these are holes. 
is a pet. Look at the scale. These things are huge. They're bigger than this room. Deep holes. Probably actually as big as the campus, if you look at the size, right? I mean, they're, they're, these aren't tiny. What could they be? Well, maybe they're a bit like the sort of thing we see in the atmospheres in the mountains. If you go up in the, um, when the sun is high in a, mount, in a mountainous area and the snow has been sitting there for a whole season, what you see is that sometimes there are these sun cups where you have sublimation that makes holes and they, they can get to be quite pointy like these penitentes. So can you imagine then, instead of having a just a 365 year, year days to a year, but a much longer year, and on top of that, uh, a, a surface that's exposed to the sun for uh, millions of years, maybe you could make big, deep holes, these deep pits. These steps, and I guess, if you've got a better idea, um, let's write a paper together. So these are the pits, more pictures of these you can see. They're not uniformly distributed. And uh, they form edges like this. Okay, so I showed these to my husband, and he's a graphic artist, and he had a great idea. Maybe this is what's causing them. <laughs> okay. It's just said to fool the geologists. Okay, but now, what about this thing? Here is a feature which is just a topographic map in, in color. This is, uh, this is large, so this is 50 miles for scale. And these are really quite high. These are big things, looks like a hole. What is it? Well, the geologists say, oh, that's an ice volcano. And then I say, what do you mean by an ice volcano? And they say, well, it's made of ice and it kind of looks like a volcano. <laughs> And I, and I, quite honestly, that's about as far as they can go in describing what's really happening. Um, now, I've heard there's some feature that's not too different from this, maybe in um, the northernmost Russia, somebody told me. Um, but I don't know. This is new stuff, new geology uh, that we are exploring and, and uh, lots of work to be done. And then there are these things. This is called snakeskin because we don't know how else to describe it. Um, these are, looks like the wind has blown it in one direction, but the atmosphere is so tenuous that it's really hard to imagine that there's enough pressure there. It's a millionth the pressure in this wind, so there's not really very much pressure to cause this. Um, the best idea is that this might again be methane frost that has formed and again, the sun, sunlight causing it to preferentially um, for, form in these shapes. Um, but to be honest with you, most people are just throwing their hands up. Uh, and this is lots of work to be done in trying to understand this really exotic surface with all sorts of interesting features. Now, this is my favorite picture, which is the picture of Sputnik Planum here, which is the plane. You can see, uh, the sun has just set, by the way, behind here. You can see the haze uh, on the horizon. You can see these big mountains illuminated by scattered light on the haze. Um, huge mountains made out of ice. There are, in fact, possibly some clouds on the horizon, too. 
Doesn't this look like a planet to you? A really bizarre environment that we have very little experience of uh, here on Earth. Now, uh, Sharon doesn't seem to have an atmosphere. It also has a lot of interesting geology. There's cracks. It seems to be mostly uh, uh, water ice, so very solid, uh, with some cracking as it as it cooled off and solidified. There's impact craters that tell you it's quite old. There's some big questions about why it's got this northern uh, blob of, of brown stuff. There's some question about whether or not um, there's no atmosphere here, so maybe this brown gunk came from Pluto, maybe um, blown out or it, it, by the atmosphere, or maybe delivered in a chunk, we don't know. Um, it's a, still a mystery as to why this, um, there's a, a uh, brown area on one side, a brown patch. And then there are the other moons. We don't have very good pictures of these moons. They're really quite small. They're just um, sort of 20 miles across, pretty small objects. Uh, this is about the best we've got. But look at their orbits. Really strange. So here's Pluto and Charon that are spin phase locked. So they always keep, um, they orbit around each other and they keep the same side facing each other. So both their spin and their orbital period is 6.4 days. And then these other things have strange spins. Look at this thing, Hydra. It spins 90 times in one orbit. Why and how did this happen? No one knows. Okay, if you're a dynamicist in the room, get your computer going and calculating how on earth you can do this. We don't know. Could it be gravity? Were they broken up? and scattered by a passing uh, object, um, we have no idea. Are these resonant orbits that lead to this strange behavior? Lots of fun work to be done. Okay, so Pluto, we've got all the data back finally. Took a long time to come down. Uh, we have all the pictures. And the question is what to do next. Well, um, we were looking for more objects uh, near in the direction of Pluto. We've flown past Pluto and we have enough fuel to change the trajectory by about two degrees. So if you hold your two fingers up, that's about two degrees from my eye. So we can move about this much, not a whole lot. So we had to find an object beyond Pluto. Do you remember how when we looked at the orbits of the Kuiper objects in the direction of Pluto and in the opposite direction, there were very few objects. There seemed to be a gap in those directions. Anybody have an idea why there's a gap in those two directions? Gravity from the gas giants. Gravity from the gas giants. Good guess, but nope, that's not the answer. Any of you amateur astronomers? The galactic plane. That is the direction of the Milky Way. So we're looking for an object, a small object, that's moving relative to the stars. But you have a background that's got billions and billions, as Carl Sagan would say, of stars. It's really hard to see the object move in front of those stars. And so it turns out that we see Kuiper belt 
objects in pretty much every direction except the direction where the uh, galaxy goes um, through the orbit of the planet, through the ecliptic plane. And so it turns out it was hard to find this object uh, in the direction of Pluto, beyond Pluto. But we did find one. We used a lot of Hubble time to look, and we found it. It's called um, uh, 2014 MU69, and we decided to call it Jim Green after the guy who happens to be head of NASA's planetary science division because we needed some money to go there, extend the mission beyond. And so we'll fly past Jim Green uh, in, in uh, New Year's Eve uh, of 2018-2019. So uh, what is this object like? Well, it's very small. If Pluto is an exercise ball, then Jim Green is a little golf ball or a ping-pong ball. Okay? So it's, uh, it's pretty small, but that's good because it tells us a very different type of object. So instead of flying past a big one that will have a lot of the features that may be the same as Pluto, we'll be seeing the building blocks that made up these icy objects of the outer solar system. So that's the plan. We're going to fly by and take pictures uh, and uh, see what it's like. So this is um, one of my favorite pictures of Pluto. It shows you the ice, the water ice mountains. It shows you uh, a layer of this brown gunky stuff uh, that has, a, 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 that has uh, rained out from the atmosphere to give it this orange feature. There's all sorts of small features due to uh, methane ice that has, fought, has rained out uh, snowed out onto the onto the surface. All sorts of interesting things here: geology uh, and atmospheric science, um, chemistry, ice physics, all sorts of things uh, for everybody to work on. So, who would have expected it? Thank you very much. So, the first two. Uh, questions get a special um, bumper sticker. And I'd better be well behaved and not try and grab those as chair. <laughs> so I think the first question might be right up at the back in the center there. Okay. Uh, thank you for your talk. Uh, oh, thanks. Um, so I was just curious, uh, how do you guys determine how thick the ice Ooh. is? So you said it's about 300 kilometers. Ooh. And then following that, uh, these, um, this soft ice that you said is convecting, how deep are these convection cells and do you know what's driving that? Okay, excellent questions. So the first question is, how do we know the relative amount of, of uh, rock and ice? And the answer is, just simple density. If the density is uh, is about two, twice that of, uh, of of regular ice or twice that of water, um, then you have to have a that basically tells you the amount of rock inside. And so you can work out the volume of the outer layers and the volume of the rock inside. And Pluto is small enough that you're not really compressing and and the, the rock deeper inside is pretty much like regular rock of regular density. So it's a fairly straightforward calculation just given the total density, 
this is what the proportions have to be. And you know that it probably melted. Um, it's big enough to have melted when it formed. And so you have the rock at the center with the ice on the outside. It's as simple as that, very straightforward. Your other question was about how deep were these convection cells that are inside Sputnik Planum. And the answer is we think about four kilometers deep. So they're not, it's a small layer on the outer, per, outer part of the object. It's not super deep, but, but it makes sense that this would be the sort of scale. We think that's topo topographically the size of Sputnik Planum. And in terms of modeling ice convection, um, that sort of makes sense. Now what is driving that convection? Well, it turns out you don't need very much. Um, to, to do that. It doesn't take a lot of energy um, because nitrogen ice fairly easily convects. Um, and indeed, there's probably enough primordial heat. When you make a planet, you're banging stuff together and you're converting kinetic energy into heat. And so you heat up an object. We think all of the objects of the solar system started off pretty warm inside and the smaller ones cool off quicker, the bigger ones take a longer time to cool, like peas and potatoes on your plate. Um, and so Pluto is big enough that it's retained enough heat on the interior um, that, it, that there's probably enough there to keep turning it over. And it doesn't take very much to drive the convection. Uh, excellent question. You get a sticker at the back. Okay, come get it at the end. I got one of these on my, on my electric scooter. It's great fun driving around. You get lots of good questions. Before we go to our next question, um, please, when you raise your hand, when I identify you, can you uh, wait for the uh, microphones to come? There's one at the front, one at the back. Okay, let me pick the person to give. Okay, young man there. Um, hi. I was wondering, with the Sputnik Planum, you were saying that you know it's quite young because it doesn't have asteroid, like meteorite impacts on it. It doesn't have craters on it, yeah. Is it possible that it doesn't have craters on it because of that convection action erasing them rather than the age? Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. So you're, you're, the reason why we don't have very many impact craters on the Earth is not because the atmosphere protects us from impacts. It's because the Earth's outer layers are turning over due to plate tectonics moving around. And so only in older areas do you see impact craters. So, um, indeed, um, the turnover, geological activity, in the case of the Earth, it's plate tectonics. In the case of Pluto, it's this convection in Sputnik Planum that tells us the surface has to be pretty young. And you can do simple calculations of, given the amount of stuff uh, it flying around in that part of the solar system, how old it would have to be. And the answer is probably um, to have no... Uh, impact craters, it has to be at least 10 million years old. But that's really young on geological timescales. Good question. And you get a bumper sticker at the end. <laughs> Any other questions? So maybe down here. Thank you. My name's Ian Bryce. The simulation you showed in the beginning of the formation of the, or evolution of the solar system appeared to show Uranus and Neptune suddenly expanding their orbits. Well, to someone who knows about the law of conservation of energy, this is a very mysterious thing. How could they suddenly get a lot of energy to expand their orbits, please? 
they are in resonance with Jupiter. So Jupiter is 320 times the mass of the Earth. It has a huge amount of angular momentum. And so by in, 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 in uh, a resonant orbit with, say, uh, Neptune, can lead to transferring some of that momentum and going out. So indeed, Jupiter would have to lose some of that momentum. And indeed, those orbits are changing. But we think that um, uh, this planetary migration is not uh, is in fact quite common, and many of the stars that have extrasolar planets, we think that planets have been migrating either due to interacting with each other or with interacting with the gas uh, drag causing the orbits to change. So. Um, it, we started off thinking that all our solar system formed with objects where they are now, um, but indeed we're beginning to learn that it makes a lot more sense to have uh, objects interacting and migrating. Let's go up to the back on the left up here. Uh, hey, I was just wondering, with Charon, how it has that uh, on the top, it's got the gunky stuff and doesn't quite have an atmosphere. Is it possible that it may have before having a stable orbit with Pluto, just slightly kissed Pluto as it came around into the orbit, and that may have also caused Hydra to be kicked off either one of them. So the idea about the formation of Sharon is very similar to the formation of our moon, in that you have a planet, in our case Earth, and in the case of Pluto, you have an object, larger object, and there's a collision with a fairly big um, thing coming by. So in the case of the Earth, we think the, uh, the, the Earth suffered a collision with something the size of Mars um, that hit the Earth and then formed a debris cloud that later condensed to form the Moon. And you end up with an Earth-Moon system which interacted and eventually the Moon moved much further away. In the case of Pluto and Charon, there was probably a large object comparable to the size of Pluto, hitting Pluto and forming a debris cloud and so on. And so indeed, those smaller moons could be easily be leftover material from this uh, earlier impact. But the idea that you can just sort of paint on that brown um, northern hemisphere is, is, is probably not a remnant of that collision, because in the process of the collision, we think you make a complete breaking up of the incoming object into a big debris cloud and then reforming. So the surface features that you're seeing were probably uh, much later uh, features and, and so you've got to come up with some other idea. But, it, but, but good point, the uh, making of these small objects, Hydra, Nix and so on, Kerberos, could well be left over from the uh, impact. And maybe that's related to the spinning orbits, but um, people are shaking their heads and scratching their heads <laughs> to try and find it out to make that explain it the way they are. Strange orbits. Maybe a question over here, please. Um, you mentioned that um, going and having a look at a Kuiper Belt object would help you work out whether that theory of um, solar system formation was likely to be true. So what would you expect to find out there if it was the correct explanation? So um, really looking at Pluto is really the reference 
uh, it's because it's the biggest and it's the first one we really looked up close. And um, what we're learning, and in fact a lot of this has been learned since we sent the spacecraft in the past nine and a half years, um, we're discovering what the surfaces are of the other objects. That some of them seem to have a similar um, colouring and uh, spectral signature as Pluto, but some of them are very different. Some of them have lost all of their methane, uh, only seem to have water ice, uh, and, and lost the volatile material. So what that is perhaps telling us is that that cloud um, originally extended quite a long way from the sun, a big range of distances where you had different materials condensing out as a function of distance. And then in this process of, of, of migration, you scattered these different uh, gas, uh, ices out. So um, I'm not going to claim that flying past Pluto allows us to say, yes, that's definitely, this theory is confirmed, or no, we've got to come up with another theory. It's really just pieces of evidence along the way. And I would argue that getting a clear close-up picture of Pluto has given us an image of at least one object um, and how it has changed and evolved over time. So that complex geology that we're seeing is an indicator of um, not just remnant material, but, but evolved material. And so um, I think comparing that evolved surface with the more primitive small object that we're going to fly by, Jim Green, in a couple of years will help us. That Those are the building blo building blocks, the small pieces that then make up Pluto. So it's, it's just a small step in that direction. Um, it, it's not a definite yes or no. It rarely is, right, in science. <laughs> uh, yes, in the center here at the front. Um, thank you for the talk. Um, my question is, uh, I think with the sort of power generator that you have on the spacecraft, it can probably run a very long time. And so my question is, like, what's the planned mission for how long you're going to listen to this thing? And is, are there uh, instruments or experiments that you have in the back of your head of, you know, what's the cool stuff out there way in the Kuiper belt that, that you're going to be listening for? So the, uh, the power on the spacecraft comes from... Um, the decay of plutonium-238, that's the, not the bomb plutonium, the not bomb stuff that's made in a reactor. And it decays uh, and in the process puts out alpha particles. We then use that heat, uh, uh, we put a blanket around it and then the temperature difference um, produces uh, a, a voltage. We use thermocouples to produce a voltage. So we have about uh, a power of about 200 watts it's decreasing with time because it's decaying with a, about an 80-year half-life. Um, so we've got plenty of, of power to power the spacecraft, keep it warm. Um, the two difficulties are finding another object to go fly by um, and sending the information back, the communication back. So um, there are observations to make, even if we don't find another type of that object. We're measuring the solar wind with the particle instruments and we're looking at the evolution of the solar wind in the outermost part of the solar system. Now, Voyager is still working at 120 
times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So New Horizons got a long way to go. To ca- it will never catch up with Voyager. Um, but it will measure the solar wind. It actually has better instruments, more modern instruments for measuring the solar wind, and can measure the effect of the interstellar material coming in and being ionized and slowing down the solar wind. So we actually measure that interstellar material with the New Horizons spacecraft. Um, but I don't think that we're going to, to go past another Kuiper Belt object. We haven't found one, and it's hard to imagine we have enough fuel to do that. Um, so whether or not NASA keeps funding us, I don't know. We'll have to see whether or not just measuring the solar wind is thought to be um, justification. Uh, but then, I, you know, getting the data back is, is difficult. The uh, antenna power of New Horizons is much less than that of Voyager. This is a 15-watt antenna, and we're communicating this distance. So think of a 15-watt radio antenna. That's the power of a refrigerator light bulb. And, and we're communicating over, you know... Um, 30 to 40 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. All right, it's, it's tricky. We'll see. Uh, yes, over here. Thank you so much for your talk this evening. Um, it's a question that I've, I've asked a number of people and no one can give me the answer for. When we were kids at school, we had our school atlases and uh, we had the sun on one end of it and Pluto at the other end of it. Do you know when that's going to happen? That they're all going to be sort of in one line? Oh, lined up? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that's a, a, that's a great word when the planets line up. It's called syzygy. It, it has an unbelievable score in Scrabble, if you can get it. Because <laughs> it's S-Y-S. Z. It's got lots of Zs and Ys in, in it. Anyway, um, okay. So, and and in fact, Voyager took advantage of the fact that Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune were not exactly in a straight line, but we could go from one to the other if we timed it right. That only happens about a hundred and a hundred and I think the number is one hundred and twenty-five years that the giant planets are lined up. Now, it turns out that Pluto was not... We couldn't go to, to Neptune and go to Pluto because um, they were not in, in a line. Um, and so when... The answer is I don't know. <laughs> but um, uh, I actually... I think the answer is never. In fact, I know the answer is never because, of course, Pluto and Neptune are in an orbital resonance. So Pluto goes around twice and Neptune goes around three times. Okay? They're in the three to two resonance. So it turns out that Pluto and Neptune, remember Pluto's orbit is eccentric. It in fact goes inside the orbit of Neptune. And so a lot of people thought, oh, maybe it's a scattered moon of Neptune. No. It's in this orbital resonance with Neptune. It's in a safe resonance. They are never in that same location where they, where Pluto crosses Neptune's orbit. Neptune is never there. So I think the answer then means that they are never all in the straight line. 
because of that orbital resonance between Neptune and Pluto. But interesting question. Yeah, great. Got me thinking. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just like to ask, um, you said the um, communication device was like 15 watt. Was there any times you lost communication? Like it might have went behind a planet or just something in the atmosphere maybe or, or problems with the, you know, the communication on Earth? No, actually what we use are these really big listening dishes on a, the Deep Space Network. And of course, um, there's uh, one here in Australia and uh, one in uh, uh, Spain and one in, in the US, these big dishes that we use, 70 meter dishes to listen. Uh, and so we didn't have a problem with those. Um, they all worked perfectly. But a week before... Um, it was actually on the 4th of July and the team was all off watching fireworks and stuff the, the spacecraft had a hiccup and we were at absolute panic because we'd spent nine and a half years to get there and a week before we got there the spacecraft went into safe mode and an absolute panic about what happened well they recovered, they guessed what went wrong they were able to put all the instructions up onto the spacecraft and it went through its sequence flawlessly. But, I mean, that was scary. <laughs> All worked well. These, these rocket scientists do amazing stuff. I'm not an engineer. I haven't a clue how to make that work, but they, they do a fantastic job. Another question just here. Um, I had a question about the technology in that obviously you sent it off 10 years before you are going to be using it. And my first thought was that technology will have advanced such a long way in that time. Do you have difficulty in analysing the data? Are there things that you wish you'd known 10 years ago that you could have put on there? How do you manage that? Yeah, so we, when we launch uh, technology into space to go to do a mission like that, we don't actually use the most recent technology. It has to have been space tested. And so we test things in space, and indeed, um, Eva Kans here has students who have been doing um, CubeSats and working on CubeSats uh, and testing technology using these small satellites. And so once it's been tested with those, we can then use them on, when it's become reliable, we can use them on space missions. So although it was launched now ten and a half years ago, um, the technology was probably a bit older than that, three or four years older than that. Um, and so it's quite old technology if you think about stuff advancing so much. But the reality is that um, the way that the technology changes is usually just to make things lighter and to make them more energy efficient. So that's why we can run a whole spacecraft on relatively low power, just 200 watts to run a whole spacecraft, because we've found ways to do things with very low power. And, you know, you think about the, the power that a phone uses these days, and the batteries are very efficient and so on and so forth, and the amount of memory that's on your, on your phone. I mean, compared with Voyager, Voyager has, is, is no more complicated than a hand calculator. So, you know, the technology has developed enormously. There aren't really things that I would do differently. I maybe, personally, I think I would have put a um, more powerful radio antenna so we'd get the data back quicker. 
Um, I mentioned this to a colleague, and he said, oh, no, no, I would have put a thermal infrared mapper or, you know, whatever. everybody's got their favorite thing they would have done. But it all worked out pretty well. Maybe I would have put a magnetometer on. <laughs> yes, I was wondering. <laughs> so maybe up at the back there, perhaps? What happens after Jim Green? <laughs> uh, basically, we run out of money. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, there, there probably isn't a, another object to go to. The chances are slim that we'll have one within our range. So I hope we will continue to measure the solar wind uh, with the SWAP and Pepsi instruments. Um, but there's nothing really we can do with the cameras. Um, so we'll, we'll go to a low data rate. Maybe we can find a cheap way of running the spacecraft using maybe students to do the operations. Um, we'll still have to use the deep space network. Maybe we can do a deal. Maybe, maybe Australia would like to donate their uh, deep space network to listen to a few, <laughs> listen to New Horizons. Just uh, in response to that, why not have some fun and try to crash it into it? <laughs> um, okay. We have a by now five-hour one-way communication time. So, and we have a three kilobits per second data rate. So, uh, we're going to crash it in. It's going to take pictures that it'll store on board. Okay, storage of data. Okay, yes, I wasn't thinking of that one. Fair point. And crash into the planet. We'll never get to see them. So, good idea. Doesn't work. <laughs> Thank you. You mentioned that um, you had a pretty good guess at what you were going to see and it wasn't too far from what you'd seen, but... No, that, that isn't what... I must have miscommunicated. It was the opposite. I thought it was going to be really boring. I thought it was going to be maybe some impact craters and nothing else. I didn't expect to see all that weird geology. So my question was going to be, what, is there a single thing that surprised you that stands out for you after all those years of waiting? Hazes... Convection, pits, ice volcanoes. So everything. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, on the left. So Pluto gave you lots of surprises, lots of things to think about. And there's clearly a lot more to learn about Pluto. Is there plans afoot to go and have a second look? Is there more to do? There's obviously plenty more to see. So I've got a question for the audience here. If we were to send another spacecraft out to the Kuiper Belt, do you think we should go to Pluto or should we go to a different Kuiper Belt object? So um, hands up if you think go to, back to Pluto. Hands up if you think we should go to a different object. Yeah. I agree. I think Eris or Maki Maki or Humea or one of these other objects, I think 
you'd want to go and look at something else. Especially one of the, the very different ones, you know, would be very interesting to go to. So there are, there is a group, Alan Stern is trying to get a group of people to go back to Pluto again. I, I think, I think go somewhere else. I think it would be very interesting. So I would like to see lots of small satellites. I think we need to learn how to send out small satellites. I think the CubeSats are as the step in the right direction. For planetary systems, you've got to build them a little bigger than a CubeSat. But why not a whole bunch of small sats? So I have a question for you. Should we as humanity be spending our taxpayers' money to send humans up into space when robots, when there's nothing that humans can do that robots can't do better, cheaper, faster, except tourism? Okay. <laughs> right? And I don't think taxpayers should be paying for tourism. So why not send hundreds of little robots out to the solar system, take pictures, do all sorts of cool stuff, and then you give every kid goggles and gloves so they can virtually explore the solar system, or the universe for that matter, right? If you want to inspire young kids to do their maths homework, which I think is the real reason for NASA, in my opinion, then, you know, I think there's a lot better way than, than putting astronauts into space. But I know Elon Musk will disagree with me on Tuesday. Well, you wait and see. Go into the center there. Just have a few more questions, and then we will I can't up. believe none of you are asking me about the planet status. That's usually the first question that comes up every time they stop. That's amazing. So let's have our question. Well, we know Pluto's not single, so it's in a relationship with Cairo. So Facebook status update there for Pluto. Um, <laughs> I, I just wanted to, and by the way, we need to send astronauts up because Matthew McConaughey needs to save us from imminent disaster. Um, robots couldn't do that. Um, I just wanted to ask you in terms of have we learned anything from the uh, New Horizons looking back towards the sun in terms of halo effects because Obviously, that's a view that we can never get. We can look out, but we can't look back. Are there interesting effects that we've seen on Pluto or any other planets uh, from New Horizons so far? So, um, you remember maybe that view called the blue, pale blue dot that, that um, Carl Sagan got Voyager to take, looking back at the solar system with the planets and um, the Earth being a small pale blue dot and his very eloquent speech about how we have to think about Earth as a place where we live and how special it is. Um, the cameras on, on New Horizons could not repeat that, actually. They don't have the capability and you can't repeat it. You know, It's a one-off thing that, that Voyager did. Um, we learned a lot by looking at sunlight as it went behind which is looking back towards the Earth. And we also use the radio antenna to communicate with Earth and look at the change in the radio signal as um, it went through the atmosphere of Pluto. Um, but, but really, uh, we can detect a few Kuiper Belt objects, but 
but um, looking back at the solar system from that distance, we're really not going to see very much except for the sun. Now, we did learn something when we flew past Jupiter. We got a gravity assist at Jupiter and looked at the Galilean moons and the Jovian system and flew down the tail of the <coughs> magnetic field. Um, but space is so big and empty that it's really hard to take pictures from so far away. Good question. Question here. Um, I hope I remember this correctly, but the albedo of the planet is supposedly much lower than that of the moon. Uh, I don't think that's true. Okay, well, let's... The moon uh, is extremely low. It's about 4%, and so right. Pluto is a lot brighter than that. I think it's about 0.6 or something like that. 0.6 or 6% maybe. Or no, I think it's like 60%. It's much higher. Okay, well... On average. But of course, if you look at this, you look at this object, here, this bit is a very high albedo. Yeah, yeah. Right? But that black area is very, very low. It mm. has the biggest contrast than any other object in the solar system. Okay, well, I think you've answered the question because I was wondering about the mechanics of taking an image of a planet, even at that distance when the light source, the sun, is so far away. Right. So the yeah, image so seemed to be brilliant. So this is why we chose the lightest part of the planet to fly closest to when we, the pictures would get blurred and smeared, so we'd have the shortest exposures. Uh, and so for the darker areas, we had to have longer exposures. And the white areas, the very bright areas, we could have... Uh, sorry, other way around. You had to have longer exposures of the dark areas, shorter exposures of the bright areas. So that was part of the calculation that we had to, to work out. Yeah, good point. Okay, question just in the middle there, and then we'll come back to you. Um, just a quick one. Did anyone in the mission seriously consider whether they might find something alive on Pluto? Okay. You guys use centigrade, right? So... Minus 233 centigrade? Seriously? Life? <laughs> I don't think so. There's, there could be a liquid ocean very deep, but it's very deep. I mean, it's much, much deeper than, than uh, Europa. So it's really hard to imagine anything. You need a source of energy. There's very little source of energy. You need, probably need water, liquid water, in order to allow the chemistry to occur to make life. And, you know, there really isn't much in the way of liquid water. You want to find life? <coughs> Go to Europa. That's the next mission. These stickers are for you guys, by the way, at the end. <coughs> Thank you for your speech. The dust collector, did it distinguish between mass and size? Um, no, it didn't. It was not a mass detector. Okay, so when we flew by, we, in the period around Pluto, we detected one extra dust particle. <laughs> one. <laughs> we did. It's called P 
Claudia Alexandra after a uh, planetary scientist who died just before we arrived. So it's in her honor. She was the uh, project scientist on the Rosetta mission. Um, so we named it after her. Um, we also detected six photons, X-ray photons with the Chandra. And actually, a press release came out last week about this. It's kind of embarrassing. It's got my name on the paper, but you know, I mean, <laughs> and I think one of the six photons is called Fran. Um, <laughs> so uh, that, that's due to charge exchange uh, of the solar. Uh, X-rays being um, scattered uh, by by actually no it's not it's not it's charge exchanges where the solar wind particles interact with each other and make a make a, an X-ray so you know it's didn't really tell us a whole lot but the interesting thing about the dust particles is that it tells us that there's not a whole bunch of dust there. That the system is not, there's not a lot of debris left over from, so all those moons that are orbiting, um, there hasn't been a generation of debris recently, it's been cleared out. And so, in some ways, it's kind of interesting that we didn't detect a whole bunch of dust. We were really petrified that there might be a ring of dust, and so we were gonna go flying through this debris and the whole spacecraft would be, you know, wrecked before we got the data back. So, um, it was a huge relief that there wasn't a any dust. But we, we were not able to measure the, the mass of the dust. That instrument was a very, very simple instrument. Yeah. I have one question right at the back. Meredith? Thanks for the talk. It was really, really uh, exciting. Uh, so I, it got me thinking, like, in the future when the space travel is going to be, like, available and possible, and we're going to switch from the kind of like well-known world into a totally unknown world and explode. So, but you, are you, you talking about Earth? Are you talking about other planets? Just other planets. Other like planets. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so you flew the, the spacecrafts past Pluto, right? And how does it feel if, if like, when you don't take the long exposure thing, you still see like stars and a bit of light, or it's really dark? How does it feel to fly through the Pluto with just regular eyes? Hmm. Okay. Um, well, it's not completely dark out there because uh, it's sort of, you could read about, you saw what Pluto time was like, right? You could, in fact, see the surface with if, if, if you were a human flying by, okay? And so... Um, uh, you would see Pluto, you would see the stars. I mean, the stars are just as bright out, to, out there as they are here. So that wouldn't be any different. You would see the Milky Way, you'd see all those things. You would see Pluto, um, and you would see the moons. So um, the only difference is that we don't have, unless you were wearing binoculars, you would not see the high resolution. Things would look a lot smaller if you just had regular eyes. So the cameras have really powerful um, uh, lenses on them to magnify everything. So if, you, if, if it was a human flying by uh, the way New Horizons did, you would not see any of that gorgeous detail of the geology because unless you were wearing binoculars. Yeah. Has that answered your question? Okay. Yeah. One more here. This woman here. Oh, two women. Great. Look at this. 
Finally, women are asking questions. Do you still have photos stored? Still ah, to come back. We've, we've got all the data back now. Have got pretty much got all. I mean, there's one or two things they wanted to resend if they needed to, but we basically got all the data back. Yeah, it, but it took this long. You know, it did take a long time to get the data back. Yeah. This is probably a good last question. Um, dwarf planet, planet. I'm, I'm guessing from your title and the fact that I haven't heard the word dwarf all night that you have a stand on that. Dwarf people are people. Dwarf planets are planets. Need I say any more? And, and I think that also answers the question that I was going to give as a Dorothy Dixer, why pugnacious? <laughs> so I, I think we should, um, at this time, uh, thank Fran very much for a fantastic talk, very impressive, Pleasure. very thought-provoking. Thank you very much. Thanks. Come get stickers.